0: I went to art school, did a fashion course. It wasn't very serious in those days because you were kind of one of those. They used to call you, oh, you're one of those, and pass you by. So when I finished that second year, I thought, oh, God, I I must get out of here. I'm sick and tired of drawing pink, nude, homeless men with great big appendages (laughs) and uh, saggy ladies. (laughs) As I was very into drawing, I just happened to stumble across this uh, illustration studio in London, and I went up for an interview and I got the job. Making tea, mind you. I thought it was illustrating, but it was making tea. Welcome to Hello Atelier.
1: I'm your host, Betsy Blodgett, and with me is Jonathan Goetz. Hello! So here we are, the grand finale of our first season of Hello, Atelier. Yay! And we were just chuffed because we got to chat with legendary fashion designer Barbara Hulanicki. Barbara, along with her husband Stephen Fitzsimon, was the mastermind behind the landmark London store Biba.
2: Now, you know I remember your fashion idols like you remember my favorite Chicago Bears players. Not well. But do you remember that time I snuck away to a bookstore in London just so I could get you that limited edition Biba book I'd stumbled upon? Husband of the year.
1: You are sneaky, even on vacation. You should know by now that Barbara is an icon, and her store Beva has reached near Atlantis proportions. You know, it's like a mythical place.
2: So remind me again how she ended up in Miami.
1: She moved there when Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones asked her to design his club, Woody's on the Beach.
2: That's right, that's right. You know how I like to chat up your subjects while I'm setting up gear before an interview. When Barbara started telling a matter-of-fact story about designing a secret crow's nest for Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood's club, I nearly tripped over my cables. How'd she get in with that crowd?
1: Well, Biba opened in London in 1964, just as bands like The Kinks, The Who, The Beatles, and The Rolling Stones were getting started. Like all the other young kids at the time, those bands were looking for the coolest clothes, and Biba had them. It wasn't unusual at all to find yourself shopping next to George and Patty or Mick and Mary Ann.
2: Well, she sure knows how to stay in the thick of it. Her workspace in South Beach is surrounded by a bustle that might be reminiscent of London in the 60s. Well,
1: it's got endless energy for sure. Anyway, let's stop all the fawning and get to the interview. We begin with Barbara describing her time as a young fashion illustrator traveling to Paris to cover all the couture fashion shows.
0: What was amazing, what's happening now too, I notice is that illustration was very strong in fact, you know, when you went to fashion, all the shows, and I graduated to going to Paris, and Milan wasn't very strong then, it was mostly Paris, and I was kind of lucky to see all these Balenciagas, and Versace Giv- was okay, but... Dior and all these shows and I used to think oh god this is so boring (laughs) because they were boring in those days they were just sort of like grand dressmakers and you had hours and hours of black dresses all the same length going by with two buttons here three buttons here (laughs) so eventually there was this thing happening in in England where people were desperate and me myself as well I needed clothes to go to all these events and there was nothing for, for that sort of 20-year-olds. You always felt like the sort of the poor relation at these shows and the events and things that happened in Paris. I happened to meet my husband, meanwhile, and we got married, and he was in advertising. And he said, you really should be doing mail order. Bieber's Postal Boutique Barbara and
1: Fitz's mail order business, launched in 1963 with an advertisement in the Daily Express. Barbara's illustration for her first garment design is an early version of what would become the classic Biba look, a young girl with giant dolly eyes caught in action as she wears her maxi-length skirt.
0: It didn't cost us anything because I knew all the the, uh, fashion editors. I used to get the drawing in to the paper and a sort of copy underneath and they were interested in seeing what the market was to and we used to get 100 to 200 orders which we packed ourselves which sounds wonderful but it wasn't so have to pack with the two jobs we had in the evening and we were just about to give up and then one of the editors called me in and she was like I want a dress I said okay let's give you a dress I was alone without fits. And she said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I think maybe pinking and because Bridget Bardo is wearing it in Saint-Tropez. And she said, okay, 25 shillings. I said, okay. And then when I got home, she said, never price anything <laughs> because it was 25 shillings, which was a dollar five or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, well, we thought, oh, it's going to be another flopperoo, but it wasn't. It, we got 17,000 replies in one size and one color, so that we were in business. A year after the success of the gingham dress, Barbara and
1: Fitz rented a storefront in Kensington to use as a warehouse for their mail-order stock. Though Barbara campaigned to use the space as a shop, Fitz was hesitant.
0: High Street Kensington in those days was really, really rough area and very inexpensive uh, which now it is, isn't it's a million, you know, as everything, you know, mm-hmm. in London. And we saw this amazing uh, Victorian shop on the corner. Oh, I thought, oh, this is just incredible. I've got to have it. So uh, we rented that to put stock in, because we had another dress as well, sort of woolly, brown-striped smoke. And the whole shop was filled with this one dress, two sizes, one colour, can you imagine dark brown pinstripe? And um, I don't know, one day I was dying to take that shop. And Fitz said, no, 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 we didn't. Our accountant said, no, you don't want to do a shop. It's terrible. He was quite right in a way. <laughs> and uh, I just opened the front door and suddenly there were all these people trying this dress on. It was so amazing. So we, then we decided to open a shop. Business it was like we were flooded and it was all cash and there was no uh, credit cards or checks in those days <laughs> Well there were checks, but you didn't take them. <laughs> it was very simple just had to count the money We were very lucky because there was ready steady go mm-hmm. which was a program on I think it was BBC all the kids used to go down there to dance and they had no clothes. So Vicky Wickham, who was the director, would send them all down to us to get the clothes. So we were very involved with all the rock stars though who weren't very famous then. Mm-hmm. Aimed for young people, 20s, because we were 24 when we opened and most of our market was 15, 16. Mm-hmm. So they were like, We're not allowed to talk about teenagers, but they were leaving school. And and the whole thing about London at the time, everybody had jobs. They were all in typing pools or typists or worked for magazines. So there was money there. I mean, they earned nine pounds a week. They spent like three pounds on a bed set. Everybody lived in bed sets, you know. Then they'd spent three on food well they didn't eat to start (laughs) off with and then three in Bieber and there was a it was extraordinary in London because there was a word of mouth you know it would get round just literally by phone it was incredible you had a delivery and they would all know and they'd be sitting there waiting for it to come out of the truck. And then somebody would give the wrong information, like it's a blouse, spotty blouse that's coming in. And uh, you find, you open the truck and find it wasn't the spotty, it was something else. And Fitz and I would be so frightened of those kids. We do have to run away. Fitz was so good at it and loved it. To me, it was like, ugh. The production and stuff was just awful. Okay. If you notice, the early Bieber stuff was just too, <laughs> <laughs> two seams and a dart, uh-huh. <laughs> which was very simple. And I had uh, a couple of kids in the Royal College that used to do the patterns and do our first sample. But then, of course, you had to find manufacturing because everything was done locally. And when the local manufacturers, who were mostly Greek down Fontour Road in London... Uh, found out we had 17,000 dresses we were were walking on water you know we were kings (laughs) everybody wanted to talk to us Uh, that was hair raising actually terrific when it's running you know which for us at the time was just amazing because there was no buyers or you know you did your thing there and then on that minute and you knew it was going to be in in two, three weeks and you knew by the public you know because you were so close that Mm -hmm. they're going to like it or sometimes they didn't but for instance I mean Fitz was the one that used to come to me and say because we had a huge workroom by them pattern cutters Mm -hmm. to do first sample only I had one jacket that was done 17 times fitted seven can you imagine even Christian Dior doesn't do that and he would just come in and say you've got to give me more dresses. I don't want to do dresses. <laughs> because it was all separates at the time. He kept the, you know, saw what the sales were, and they just came and told me what what was missing.
1: In the midst of the Technicolor 1960s, Biba clothing was instantly recognizable. Barbara preferred jewel-tone colors like dark plums, browns, and purples. These rich colors continued to inspire Barbara as more Biba products were added, like shoes, home furnishings, and cosmetics.
0: Well, that was my beastly auntie, (laughs) (laughs) who who tortured us with her plums and sort of oxblood colors and murky greens and everything I hated Mm -hmm. when I was sort of... 15 16 i had these friends in the uh, american friends at school at boarding school who used to come back with the most amazing wardrobes and i still oh my god there were pink dresses and there were twins so one wore pink and the other one always wore blue and matchy matchy everything I was oh it's just amazing dirndl skirts and and petticoats and so that's all I wanted, was that, with, with sort of felt poodles stuck on them. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to have those. But, and then we used to have to sort of wear all the leftover dresses, <laughs> which were droopy 30s things. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, suddenly that kind of started looking really good <laughs> when I was free of her. <laughs> now, what we did was, at first, we, there was this amazing shop up the road which was called Pontings, really out there since the 20s. And they had this room that was as big as this building full of old fabrics. And I used to go, oh, my God, it was absolutely amazing, all the old crepe de And So we were using that. And, you know, you could just do one pattern and all different fabrics and... It, it was absolutely amazing but see with fabric after a while after we got past ponting stage we started um, developing our own stuff for instance when you know jersey was not around mm-hmm. stretch fabrics mm-hmm. and sort of jersey and then we had our original mill up in uh, Manchester who supplied us with the pink gingham which wasn't pink <laughs> but they developed all these fabrics for us for instance kept using this, these crepe de chine type. And he said, oh, I've just, we, we'll get the man who used to do all our crepe de chine in the 30s. He's now retired, but he'll, he'll come in and develop all the, all the yarns and things for us, and he did. We would get the bulk and then dye it up to our colors, print it, so we always had the stock of fabric for. The thing was that you got the dress, you got the shoes, got the tights and now you had no face so had to have cosmetics so we just went down to a factory I just wanted a brown lipstick you know we're going to buy and we're going to order it and have sort of face about a hundred men around a table I think what, what am I doing I just want a bloody brown lipstick and there's no 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 we can't because they were making Revlon stuff which was coral pink and coral pink and They said, oh, we can't make this. Uh, No, 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 it's not going to sell, blah, blah, blah. They were really giving me, and I I thought, you know, I'm buying, come on. And then the girls from the lab come in, because they get the girls from the lab and say, look at this, isn't this ridiculous? And the girls say, oh, no, we love it. it. We'll do your samples for you. So they did one color for us, you know, a whole load. 60 or something, 80. And we put it in the shop, and they sold out in the first hour. Biba was as renowned for its store design
1: as it was for the clothing. Beginning with the first shop at 87 Abington Road in Kensington, a visit to Biba was an experience. The dimly lit interiors were filled with potted palms and antique furnishings. The clothing hung on bentwood hat stands with the walls covered in black and gold Art Nouveau wallpaper. The large front windows were painted with swirling designs that hid the dramatic interiors from the outside world. This luxurious cave of treasures was reimagined each time Biba moved to a new, larger space. In 1973, Biba made its final move into the Dary and Toms building on Kensington High Street. This behemoth took up an entire city block and was filled with Art Deco details and even included a rooftop garden. Barbara and Fitz turned the five-floor building into a fantasy land with Disney-like store furnishings. While customers lolled on the catches that lined the darkened store windows, huge mirrored islands filled with feathered plumes floated in the cosmetics department. In the children's department, kids clambered on a giant-size record turntable and ate lunch on overgrown toadstools. At one end of the lingerie department, an 85-foot-wide platform has a huge Art Nouveau bed and wardrobe set which was completely covered in leopard print. And while bands like the New York Dolls played upstairs in the Rainbow Room restaurant, customers in the food hall could buy their Biba-labeled food out of giant-sized sardine cans.
0: I did the shop art, so there was always, as I had a husband who hated shopping, (laughs) I did lots of sofas always so that the boys would sit there, shut them up. (laughs) At that period, I mean, there was no design, uh, furniture design. It was really horrible. It was sort of Italian, which we hated. So we spent all our time down in in the markets, picking up these amazing pieces of furniture, which were like two, three pounds. And of course, now they're worth fortunes. You know, lug the stuff back and cupboards and bits that fell to pieces and <laughs> Fitz and I did the whole thing we had seven um, draftsmen from the James Bond films and we had two designers as well mm-hmm. on top and then Fitz did all the sort of sizes of the you know the departments and the production of the stuff that was being made all over we pit all over England things were bad in the areas like Wales and up north in Scotland to get things made that were really good prices by then we we got a partner and we had their huge warehouses and we brought all the units down from the factories set them up and then we would go and inspect and see whether it was all working, then they would be dismantled and then brought onto the site. So it was quite an opera. and that was fit. Incredible operation. When Big
1: Biba, as it was known, opened in 1973, it is said that it immediately attracted up to a million visitors a week. It became the place to go and be seen for everyone from David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, and Mark Bolan to tourists visiting London for the first time. However, poor decisions by their financial partners led to disaster for Biba, forcing it to close after only two years. Barbara, Fitz, and their son moved to Brazil where they opened a successful new store and garment line under Barbara's name. After a move back to England, an unlikely request from a member of the Rolling Stones brought Barbara to Miami. The opportunity to refurbish aging Art Deco hotels has kept her there
0: since. We lost Biba, we lost the name. They did a really dirty trick on us, we, because we owned 25%. So we we just thought, oh, let's get out of here, it's awful. So we went to Brazil and we had a store and we had wholesale throughout Brazil. We had these reps that had a little truck and they would just shove the stuff in and travel around. And because you could, again, it was another situation there where there was nothing. There was stuff being imported and it was terribly expensive, like they would mark up about two, three hundred times. And we were producing everything there. And also we were working with Fiorucci in Italy and Casserelle, so as to go over to Paris and Milan. Oh yes, and then here came Ronnie Wood from old days. I said, oh, I'm just doing a club and it's going to take six months in this really... We knew this place very well because during the late 60s we used to come over here a lot because it was the only flight that was direct to the sun. We get pretty desperate in England for, for a bit of sunshine. And because it was amazing. Vintage shops here. I was to go mad. So, you know, I couldn't wait to get back here again. So the six months turned to two years to five years. <laughs> And then I met Chris Blackwell. He'd bought the marlin. He, he didn't do anything with it. It's very interesting because you have to work with the, what you're given as a, the shell and to try and make it as, as... People are funny in hotels. They go to hotels to see the latest things. So I always remember way back when we were doing Chris, high hats were the biggest thing. Things that you can't afford to do in your home. And I think that's quite always important to have things that... Now it's sort of the effort, because all the homes have got... Well, I don't know, the pictures of new homes they are so bland. They're all going to the same wholesaler, aren't they? It was a learning experience in production, I tell you, making things. Because you had to make everything manufacture all the furniture and stuff because um, nobody liked all the deco. They were throwing everything out. Can you imagine? Barbara designed her first hotel in 1990 and continues to do
1: so today. In fact, she is constantly working on new projects. Wallpaper, furniture, styling, and even a coloring book featuring her fashion illustrations. For Barbara, who has always had a symbiotic relationship with street style... Miami is a never-ending source of inspiration. There's
0: always something happening, more so than in London, you know. But not so much in uh, shops and things, because that's pretty starting to be corporate and so on. There's that sort of individual, like, old days. But, you know, the people are amazing. I mean, down here, every weekend, it's different set of people coming down wearing all their latest clothes because the things that they've just gone and bought and it's very interesting to see that brand new thing that i'm really pleased with
1: (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode of hello atelier to see pictures of barbara's studio designs and of course biba visit us at helloatelier.org to keep up with our new episodes be sure to subscribe on itunes and don't forget to follow us on facebook and instagram